And I think if we focus more of our energy, our leadership, our management focuses much more around how do I help people do their job better? How do I remove barriers to getting work done? People are going to be much more satisfied and engaged. Hey, it's Bev, and this is the People at Work podcast. Uh, This is the place where we have fairly hard-hitting conversations with uh, people and leaders in organizations who are really driving change around improving the employee experience at work. Today, I'm going to be chatting with um, Mark Britz. And Mark is someone who is working on the forefront of the changing face of learning and development in organizations. And in our conversation, we really dig into the change that's happening with organizational design and the impact that that has on the role of managers and leaders in organizations. And Mark shares with us his thoughts on how the way that leaders are now leading today is really impacting the way that people learn and succeed within an organization. So it's a really interesting conversation that touches on a number of different topics. And I know that uh, when you come through this conversation, you will not only have uh, a lot to think about in terms of the changing face of leadership in organizations, but also what that means for the outcome of engagement in the workplace. So I encourage you to sit back, enjoy the conversation, and please do give us some feedback at the end. Hey there, Mark. It's uh, great to see you and uh, connect with you again. I know that it's been a couple of years since you and I have really had a a good face-to-face. I I know that we keep track of each other and we give each other some social and blog-related love uh, from time to time, but I'm really delighted that you're going to be chatting with me on the podcast. And uh, I uh, am just excited to hear your perspective on a few key pressing things that workplaces are facing today. And I know that you're going to bring some interesting ideas that we haven't heard yet on the podcast. So um, maybe we'll just uh, get right into it. Yeah, let's do that. Thanks, Beth, for having me here. I'm, I'm excited to be able to talk to you a little bit about this. Yeah, awesome. Thanks. So I guess one of the things that uh, I had come across quite recently that really intrigued me was a, an article that you had written on your own blog and, and published in a couple of places with the, the title, which I, I think was really caught me as, as something that uh, I found quite curious. And that the article is titled The Friction of Logic. And I'd love that for us, for that to be the starting point of our conversation today, because I, I, I think that you had outlined some really interesting ideas um, around how sort of ideas and work and technology and the sociology of workplaces actually all come together um, to play well. And when one of those pieces don't work together, then none of them can work effectively. So um, if that's a fair statement, maybe let's uh, start off by um, explaining why did you why did you decide to write an article on something about the friction of logic? What does that mean in the context of workplaces? Yeah, so I think I think just to kind of recap um, the post, um, what we're really talking about is those things that um, in workplaces that will give us pause uh, before we we can really be our true selves and sharing our ideas and 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 being connectors in our organization. So I, actually, I have to give credit where it's due. It was um, many people may have heard of Gary Vaynerchuk and uh, his his being a CEO of VaynerMedia, and he talked at length. And he kind of had a projection into the future about Amazon. And he said, you know, Amazon was interested in NFL football games. And he said, what's going to happen is 
people are going to use the uh, Amazon and watch a game, and and that and Amazon's going to recognize that individual from their buying habits. And the moment some exciting thing happens in the game, um, Amazon's going to be able to ping that individual and say, "Hey, your favorite player just scored a touchdown. You want to buy this jersey? You want to buy this hat? You want to buy this merchandise?" And really, it's in a sense getting ahead of that logic, right? So often, what happens is people reason themselves out of a decision. They'll say, "Well, I don't have the funds for this. I don't need another jersey. I don't need this." But in that emotional state, they're ready and more quickly going to press that button and make that purchase. And it really got me thinking about it in our organizations how we do the same thing, um, where depending on the culture, you know, it's a big buzzword, the word culture, but depending on the culture of an organization. Uh, people can reason themselves out of sharing information and sharing new ideas and sharing their perspective and having input on ideas. We do that because in the back of our minds, that lizard brain of ours is is always looking at the big picture of the system that we work in and say, oh, I have this great aha moment, but if it's half baked, am I going to be criticized for it? If I mistype something, if I misspell something, am I inviting criticism on me? How will this be received by my peers? Should I share my knowledge? Because if I do, I'm giving something away that is a power center possibly for me. So I think what we have is an issue in organizations where we do want people to be emotional in a, in a good way and be able to promote their ideas and have that psychological safety, right? To be able to put something out and know that no matter where it goes, it doesn't jeopardize their existence in the organization or hinder their growth or development. And right now, I think that is an overarching problem in organizations is that suppressive uh, culture that we, we have in most places. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And I mean, you're touching on some really critical issues there that uh, we know are evident in workplaces and mm -hmm. you know, not least of which is the sort of the, the the power hungriness that we we find around people sort of hoarding things that will be uh, beneficial to them to keep close to them, but they're not necessarily going to help um, you know the rest of the group be successful. And um, you know also those environments where people aren't encouraged to take risks or be vulnerable or show courage or um, they don't want to speak up at the meeting because they're afraid that their idea is going to be shot down. Um, yep. You know, those sorts of behaviors. And, and you touched on this whole notion of psychological safety, which I think m many people are, are coming to to realize uh, the importance of, of that within effective teams. And I mean, there's a lot of documented evidence now around, you know, the big, big companies where they're seeing these um, the ways that teams work together, those teams that actually do have that vulnerability where people are throwing out ideas, feeling safe to do so, um, are actually performing better than those that aren't. So, so I guess my question for you is, how do you build that sort of safe environment where people can actually be um, experience this positive friction of, of being emotional in the moment and being okay with it and knowing that it's actually going to be good for them and the team um, yeah, as opposed I think, to I, the opposite. Yeah, I think, I think it's, you know, there's a couple entry points for something like that. It depends on the organization. It's hard to say there's a blueprint for this because every organization, I like to say, is unique as a fingerprint. But in the end, I think, you know, the, the, the beauty of that whole thing of psychological safety is we're using a term like psychological and, and psychology. And I think what, what we're getting back to is we're getting away from the, the focus on technology and really trying to understand people. And with that in mind, 
the biggest points that we can do is we have to model these types of behaviors in our organization. You know, if we're really going to change from this more hierarchical structure, then yes, those types of people in leadership roles, managerial roles, have to be able to model failure, and that's okay with failure. They have to be able to recognize that a failure in an organization or a stumble in an organization is not a terminal uh, activity. It's an opportunity to learn. And, you know, it's like if we're not learning from those failures, then we truly are failing. So to bring those to light, to be obvious, to be transparent about what's working and not working is a critical piece. Because I think we find everywhere that if these things are being modeled, if it becomes more the norm, then the newest people to the organization, they pick up on this and they understand that safety. So I think that's the first step in the process is just modeling that particular behavior, um, making things much more evident across the board. I also think you know a big part of my, my belief system is, like you said, environment. And I think that's one thing that's a big miss is we're not addressing the larger systems and organizations that really kind of guide people in their behavior. They're, they're unconscious systems for a lot of people. They're kind of transparent working behind the scenes. And I don't mean technical systems. I don't mean computer systems. I'm talking or platforms. We're talking about those human systems. It's really the organizational design, right? So we know these things exist. A lot of small companies grow and they default to certain types of structures. And some of those things are like, how are decisions made in the company? How do we recognize? How do we reward employees? You know, a lot of times we say we want certain behaviors out of people. We train, right? We put, we put people in training situations or classroom situations say, this is how things have to get done. But then we don't address the actual system behind them that guides that behavior. So, you know, changing the mission statement or the purpose statement of the company is like that attack on the beliefs. But if you're not changing the broad system, people will always be pulled back to center. So I think unless we address some of those things where, hey, if we want more collaboration in the company, you can't tell somebody to collaborate, right? You can't necessarily incentivize them to collaborate. But if you change the system of recognition and awards, say, hey, we are going to recognize people who have more inputs as well as outputs. And then we're going to see a change in behavior as people want to share their knowledge more because it becomes more evident that this is important, as, as important as the output in the organization. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I'm reflecting on a, an earlier podcast conversation that I had with um, Nate Klemp, who talked with us about the, the habitual actions that we, we take every day that we're not even aware of as individuals. So as humans, we do that. You know, more than 40% yeah. of our day-to-day -day actions we just do, like climbing stairs, getting in your car. You know, obviously we can't be aware of everything we're doing. I also don't take us forever to do everything. But um, similarly, organizations and the teams and the people that work as systems within those environments also have habituated actions. And I, I'm seeing a little bit of a parallel here because some of what he was talking about around sort of unlearning some of the things that we do as habit every day as organizations. So like you were saying, the decision making, um, you know, the rules and procedures that we layer on people, um, how we dictate where people work, how they work. You know, all those sorts of things are habits that we as, um, mm -hmm. as leaders and managers within organizations really need to challenge ourselves around what, and, and you were speaking about organizational design, and, and that's a big part of it. It's, it's designing how we all want to work together and what is the maximum sort of outcome for those choices that we make and how right. our habits are actually holding us back. And, and what mm -hmm. do we need to start unlearning in some respects? So I see a, a great parallel between human behavior and organizational behavior um, from a habit point of view. So 
maybe let's just drill into a little bit more around the the role of leaders in this whole notion of of organizational design and, and maybe just for the, for clarity here let's let's define leaders as as anyone who is either leading people or projects or is in a position okay. to make uh, an impact a significant impact to the architecture of an organization or the way that people show up just because mm -hmm. a leader could be anybody if we don't define it um, I agree. so what what are are leaders needing to be thinking about specifically around creating psychologically safe environments? If, if we are working on the assumption that we need to get those environments psychologically safe before we can unlock some of these other things that we, we think are required for organizations to be successful, um, because you can have all the tools and, and processes and right. intentions you like, but unless the, the sociology um, and the emotional basis is right, the rest of it cannot follow. At least that's what I believe. Um, please challenge me on that. Um, but if we can agree on that, then um, let's talk about, well, what, what role do leaders have in creating these, these psychologically safe environments? Because, I mean, to some degree, they, they might create themselves, but I, I think there needs to be some intentionality there that, um, has to start with the leaders and their their leadership um, style and brand and how they're present in the organization. So I'll yeah, hand it over to you to give me your thoughts. Yeah, my thoughts on that are I think I think a couple of things. One one thing I, I I try to remind people of is to remember that people people ultimately go to work to work, right? And we we see a lot of a lot of leadership or a lot of you know a lot of effort by organizations to think that you know, they, that people go to work to be entertained. They go to work to make friends. Uh, they even go to work to learn. It's not true. They go to work to work because it's in that work that they find a great deal of satisfaction. It's in the work and the accomplishment and showing their competency that it's there. I think then what it comes down to is better understanding in the organization, like you said, who is the leader? In a very, very large organization, there's always a tendency to put emphasis on, we have to get leadership to transform. And what they usually mean is, we need these big leaders in the C-suite. You know, they're thinking about the CEO and they're talking about the chief operating officer and these big roles. When actuality in most organizations, the employees are looking a level down. They're looking at the, the level closest to them and that's their managers. You know, those are the ones who are evaluating their progress. Those are the individuals, you know, who, who have the decisions to make in terms of how somebody advances, how they're rewarded, how they're recognized. It's changing that manager's behavior from being more of a driver of a taskmaster and more about like, how do we build a system around management leaders at that level that is more about mentoring and coaching, you know, putting somebody in that role that it says your job and your primary uh, way to be evaluated is going to be on your ability to grow people. So it changes the paradigm a little bit. If we think about a manager's role as being, you're the primary learning leader, if you will, of those people you, that report to you. It's your job in a sense to take away barriers um, to their work and give them the tools and the uh, acknowledgements that they need to, to grow in their particular role. Right now, I think the vast majority of people who roll into leadership roles have more of a command and control mentality, you know, kind of driving the, the, the workforce forward. The idea of, you know, I lead, you follow versus how do I develop these people? How do I give them the space they need to grow, um, as well as the technology, the tools, and, they, and then like we said early on, the emotional side of it. 
how do we do that? I think it starts with changing that that function. You know, the title alone for a lot of people as a manager comes from the industrial age. Um, you know, it's, it's redefining that particular role as you move people into it and effectively assessing them on their ability to do those things, mentoring and coaching. So I, I agree with you about the, you know, redefining what those roles are, but and I think we've now seen enough literature and, and, and research material and, and studies showing us that a different style and a different way of leading is needed. But I think, unfortunately, the vast majority of people who are in manager positions still um, are still adhering to that very sort of command and control um, sort of top-down leadership style. And how do we actually start moving and shifting the attitudes and the mindset of, of managers to being closed, to going from a closed mindset to a growth mindset. Because, you know, there's such a huge opportunity for so many people's day-to-day uh, -day work lives to be impacted by a shift like that. And it doesn't have to be a, a significant shift, but I just look at it in terms of, you know, the downstream effects that you get from making one change and where's the maximum impact that you can have within an organization. And it's sort of that middle manager, you're right, mm -hmm. that, that, that tier that sits above the vast majority of your employee base because they have the most potential to influence people. So how do we, how are we either through, is it, is it incentivizing? Is it through learning and development? Like how are we actually shifting the mindset of the band of managers that have the ability to impact our organizations the greatest? Yeah, I, I, it goes back to what you know I was, I was saying early on, and I think you know again when we think about organizational design, we structure organizational design is a big lofty term, and a lot of people are scared of when they when they hear it, they think oh that's beyond me, but it's not. You know, we really think about organizational design as I mentioned, it's like how are decisions made? You know, where does how does how is power defined and distributed in an organization, re recognition, rewards. A lot of that manifests itself in, honestly, the job description. You know, it's like when we, when we define the particular roles and hire for those particular roles, then that job description is what we often align people to in their, in however you want to evaluate them, your, your methodology of evaluation of employees. I think one of the simplest things to do, and I think, you know, it, it really comes back to, I think it was Jim Collins, who wrote the book From Good to Great. Back in 1999, he had an article uh, in Harvard Business Review and it was on uh, cat catalytic mechanisms, you know, making this, this type of change. You know, if you make a change there and describing this is what your role is and this is how you'll be evaluated at the manager's level, it's gonna change that mindset. It's the system that people adhere to versus, oh, I'm a manager, I'm gonna be like this. Well, they're going to respond more to what is it defined by the system and how the system is going to help me succeed or fail in the organization, manager level, employee level, even leader, even higher level leadership. I think those are the types of things we need to attack in the organization. And do you think it depends on the industry or is it is it industry agnostic? Like, could you make a change like this mm -hmm. in, in, any, in any industry? Yeah, I, I honestly think, uh, I mean, I, I'm optimistic. I think you can change it in, in, everywhere you go. I think there's there's been, when we talk about an industrial era mindset, it crosses all levels, you know, in all types of organizations, you know, even in academic institutions, it's been kind of ingrained. I also think we have an issue, and I was just tweeting about this today a little bit, and that was, 
you know, uh, we have a workforce that is, is relatively conditioned for the industrial era. I mean, there are people who are comfortable in command and control environments. They want the strong, they don't want the open and transparent mm-hmm. leadership because the open and transparent leadership looks exploitable, looks weak and often in their mind. They want that direct person. I mean, we've got to move through this if we're going to see the high levels of, of collaboration and agility and responsiveness we want. But I definitely think the premise of it, it does translate across all industries. It's just a matter of how that's formatted. Yeah, so, you know, I think that there's some uh, some basic uh, principles, or maybe not principles, but there, there's some some foundational work that, that needs to be done in order for the stage to be set for these examples of, of organizations that you have in mind where things are operating optimally. Yeah. But let's just let's just play play along for a moment here and let's let's paint the picture of what um, what does an organization look like where these types of systems are 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 actually operating optimally and mm-hmm. what does that look like for the people within those organizations? Like what experience are they having? I think I think that individuals and obviously think one is continuous learning. You know, I think when you have that type of organization where people are free to share and they're 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 less inhibited, we we end up with like an organization. You know, to talk a little philosophically, that would look like Athens in ancient Greece. You know, the doors are wide open. They they they're they're constantly in a creative mode. Uh, it's the golden era, right, of, of of what we're looking at in organizations when you have that. I don't think you're worried so much about things like engagement because people are, you know, when they're connected, when they have what they particularly need emotionally, physically, um, they're going to be sticking with that organization. They believe in it uh, because they have skin in the game. They're contributing at all levels uh, where the hierarchy kind of fades away. I think then you're looking at a, a sustainable organization because what we're seeing today, I mean, we talk about complexity, you know, and we see changes in technology that come hard. Now everybody's racing to get to digital transformation, the latest, the latest buzzword, right? Mm-hmm. And really what they're trying to do when they do that is they're trying to get small again. You know, it's really what these large organizations, when you really boil it down and they want greater customer intimacy, right? And they want to have, you know, a greater um, connection and resiliency, you know, in the organization. It's really about bringing people and closing those gaps, you know, between the outside and the inside of the organization. So I think it becomes much more nimble, you know, as far as an organization goes, um, and they can handle the complexity because their approach becomes much more about what Dave Snowden referred to as probe, sense, and respond. We try things, we get data, and we we revamp and we try again, and all the things we've talked about in terms of the system and the and the idea of uh, psychological safety is all kind of wrapped into that. This is the only way where that organizations, I think, will thrive. Mm-hmm. So that all sounds absolutely amazing. Um, Doesn't it, though? <laughs> <laughs> why are we not already there? You know, are, are, are we actually getting in the way of ourselves? You know, because obviously, if you think about that almost utopian environment for an organization, all the people that are there are giving their best. Everyone's yeah. firing on all cylinders. The teams are in sync and working cohesively together. The output is incredible. Customers are happy. Profits must be great. You know, then yeah, it could be. You know, so. you'd think that it must be a, a you know 
a, a fairly positive environment um, on all on all fronts. So, so where are we falling short? Yeah, in my estimation, I think we're we're just in a phase where at this stage, at the turn of the century, that we're just we're just becoming much more enlightened now. I think, unfortunately, what we've seen in the last, you know, 20 years, uh, 19, 20 years since the turn of the century has been a real emphasis that technology can save us. But really what it's done, I think, in a lot of cases is it's it's opened our eyes more about the human condition um, more than anything. And I think that's why we're in this kind of growth period. You know, it's 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 painful. You know, we're seeing we're seeing some trends transitions. We're seeing stories of holacracy, and then we're seeing criticism of holacracy. You know, we're hearing teams of team of teams and approaches and how it doesn't work or it does work. And I think it's just because we're kind of stuck in this mentality, this this paradigm. And I think one of the things that really, in all honesty, holds us back a lot is a lot of larger companies are still very much focused on quarterly returns. And it drives a mm -hmm. lot of their decisions in terms of where we're at and how that inflect, infect, uh, you know, affects the employee base. And the mm -hmm. moment you the moment you have to move to something like layoffs, I don't care how great your culture is, you just destroyed it. You know, you you've broken a particular trust that you you weren't prepared for as you as you grew. So I think there's some things that are lingering, you know, from the last century in the world of work that we have to let go of. Um, and that is typically around hierarchy. It's typically around, like I said, the, the quarterly, the financial drive um, in the okay. organization. It's understanding and respecting individual needs, you know, the whole person at work. So these type of things, I think, are, are, are just lingering effects. Yeah. So as we are moving into a new age, you know, if we've if we've left the industrial age behind and we've we've advanced our society and our structure of work, let's maybe talk a little bit about the tension that exists between. So there is this move towards. Um, I mean, and we are in a new age now of. Um, you know, a digital age where um, yeah. we we are. I mean, I I, I kind of laugh when people talk about digitizing the workplace. I mean, we've been working in digital workplaces for quite some time now. This is no right. surprise. It didn't happen yesterday. But I guess the, the the pace of change and 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 how rapidly we're transforming to become more of a digital environment is what's at play. Um, mm -hmm. There's this tension that I think that exists there that as we're becoming more digital, um, at the same time we're introducing this whole notion of humanizing the workplace. And so there's, maybe it's a, it's a healthy tension at the moment, but maybe let's just dig into, you know, what starts to happen as you start to, you know, and there's a lot of talk going on right now as, you know, we talk about automation and removing yeah. humans from the workplace and people losing their jobs and, you know, which jobs are the robots going to take and, you know, <laughs> what's going to happen in the future of work. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot going on. I, you know, I think the reality is, is that um, we will continue to evolve our workplaces and the way that we do work is going to change. It always has. That's nothing new. Um, but is this tension between the sort of the digitizing and the humanizing actually does it exist and and what what should we be looking at to make sure that we actually harness the best of both rather than letting one um, impact the other negatively yeah I think, I think it's just being, yeah I think it's just being open-minded in terms of you know what the technology affords us I think I think you know you mentioned like oh the robots are taking our jobs and there's definitely that sentiment out there 
But really what's happening is people aren't looking at the fact or historically even looking back in the last 20 years about the types of jobs that have emerged as new positions, new roles in organizations because of technology. You know, I think the other thing is technology is, as we know, is freeing people up to focus on what humans are really the best at doing. And that is relating to other people. Um, it's the creative work. It's the problem solving work that's going to be emerging from us. I think a new narrative has to has to happen around this. Uh, you know, the fear mongering is there, uh, you know, it's, you know, fear and, and sex sell. So it's like, this is what people like to like pigeonhole us into is these kind of conversations. But I really think mm -hmm. that there is slowly an evolution of the digital and the humanizing. I think they're both coming together. But like you said, it's not new. It's, it's been happening, but it's happening at such a gradual pace that people aren't really recognize it in, in their daily, in their daily work, you know, how things have changed. We want revolution, it seems, all the time. We want rapid change in our organizations. But the reality is we can only go at the speed that, you know, the human and, and the, the emotional, illogical human can handle. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of um, thinking about change in particular, so, yeah. you know, and this is maybe where the learning and development piece comes in around, and by change, I specifically mean individual change. and having this impact or this impetus for leaders to be thinking about how to do things differently and you know how are we actually helping people be successful in these environments where we're demanding that the systems change but we're not necessarily helping the people themselves change mm. so like what advice do you have for uh, you know, teams of people who may be struggling with that exact problem, right? Where they're, they're faced with, you know, they need to work differently, but they don't know how to do it. So, you know, what, what resources are there for people to actually learn how to change themselves? Yeah, I think, I think in all honesty, you're, you're hitting a really good point about, um, you know, helping people help themselves, right? Kind of leading them to, you know, these, these changes. Because, what we see a lot of in learning and development historically has been, you know, kind of the, the, the pushing of content on people and the changing of processes versus inviting them into that conversation. You know, the role really has to be about, you know, helping people make these discoveries and having a sense of ownership, this autonomy piece to it, you know, as having mm -hmm. input. And the pace of change just has to be realized, you know, that there's, there's a, a certain level of patience that, that happens. People need time to play. You know, they need time to, to tinker with the technologies that are out there, the digital technologies. You know, when I think about the early days of social technology, I mean, what we see today is a manifestation of a lot of people playing with these technologies that were really simple early on and, and making them what worked for them. And then the platforms, you know, adopted what was happening by those individuals. So I think a lot of learning is about space. You know, it's giving them the time and the connections. I think it's it's easy for us to say in, in, in organizations to have an initiative and this more of an edict that comes down by the organization. But what we really want to be able to do is bring people together who get it and the people who want to get it and have those open conversations so they can learn through each other in a less structured, probably less formal or, or inhibiting way. And, and through that process, do people who can't work that way or who don't want to change to work that way, are they essentially 
not left behind, but they, they will naturally be filtered out because they, they, they don't want to or can't um, operate within that newer, more fluid framework. So um, maybe it's a, it's a bit of a natural selection process. <laughs> I mean, it's a harsh reality, but I think, you know, I go back to that Jim, that Jim Collins article and he said about catalytic mechanisms back in 99 that, you know, they expel viruses. You know, those people who are resistant, who are going to push back, you know, eventually if it's the right thing to do, the wrong people leave, you know, that mm -hmm. aren't, aren't completely bought in. And, you know, for the, for the greater good, that tends to work. Um, People do come around, you know, at their own at their own level, but the pace of change is is definitely rapid. Yeah, and I think that's something that you touched on earlier about if you do a few of these key things, then engagement takes care of itself. And I yeah. think the same probably holds true to if you attend to people and you help them sort of self actualize within your environment, you give them the flexibility and the variability that they need to work the way they need to, to acquire the knowledge and the skills as they need it. Um, the engagement piece is going to take care of itself because those mm -hmm. people will stay and will give back to your organization again and again and contribute to your culture in, in positive ways. There's that whole discretionary effort idea with, you know, people who are giving more than, you know, what they have to give. A, according to the terms of their job description and their employment agreement. And then right. that's the optimal, right? Where you're actually just coming together as a group of creative, interested individuals who are trying to solve these, these problems, the problems that your organization exists to, to solve. Um, but I think through that process, the people who, who aren't suited to that way of operating will necessarily move on. And um, that in and of itself, I think is a healthy thing. Like I, I I think it's okay for someone to say, well, they, they can't be part of an organization because it doesn't suit them in both positive and negative ways. Yeah. Um, and I think yeah. organizations just need to become okay with that and become okay with the idea that they're not going to bring everyone along with them and they shouldn't um, right. if they're not going to be able to contribute to higher order operating and, and thinking about work and relating in different ways than simply barking out orders or, um, you know, clocking in, clocking out, you know, those sort of yeah. very outmoded ways of thinking about um, how we show up and contribute our skills. And I mean, you and I are, are good examples of that where, I mean, we we lead quite, um, obviously we have different jobs and we have different focuses yeah. in, our, in our professional careers, but um, we have a degree of flexibility and a way of working that, you know, is so different to when I started working, um, you know, being in a very, very sort of rigid office environment, um, you know, resembling something out of office space, you know, that <laughs> to this environment today where, you know, emphasis on flexibility, you know, work at the standing up desk, go for a walk and have a work, or, uh, you know, a walking meeting if that's what serves you best, um, to just having access to so much more energy and creativity. And I just, it really puzzles me that there are, are organizations that haven't tapped into this and are not embracing the, the creativity that is, that is locked into their, their employee base. Um, yeah. Not just their leaders. You know, it's, it's the leaders is one thing, but it's everybody else that those leaders are going to influence that we really have to be thinking about as well. 
Yeah, I think it's a, you know it's an interesting point too. Is that that you know for a lot of organizations, I think it still comes back to if it's not broke, why fix it? You know, a lot of a lot mm-hmm. of companies are still very successful in meeting their their profits and what they what they what they see as what the measure of success is, especially for the short term. So, you know, that's why there's always that fear. You know, it's like things are working just fine. You know, let's not introduce this new collaborative technology, right? So mm-hmm. it's like this, we don't need this additional element. It's just gonna, it's gonna fill the soup, so to speak. But I think, you know, going back to the engagement point you made is, I think engagement is, has always started at the point of work. You know, I think, as I said, you know, people go to work to work. And if, you, if you're focused on helping people do their job and you're introducing technologies that make their job easier or better in some way, they're more apt to adopt that technology. It's when we bring it, on, bring it in on the peripheral, you know, to make it about, you know, like, let's make this technology about engagement. Well, that's not what people are generally after. They're, they're after doing well yeah. in their work. You know, this is what motivates them. Yeah, and that's a really good point. And I, I think that's that's largely why things like, um, you know, social enter- enterprise platforms and, you know, yeah. even gamification to some degree is failing, right? Because people don't come to work to be entertained, as you had indicated. You know, they're generally they're there to, uh, you know, obviously there are many people who work because it's a paycheck and you know that's that's um, you know that's unfortunate i you know i wish that everyone could go to work and feel fulfilled and feel like they're mm-hmm. putting their full self and full set of skills to work but we know that that's not a reality and there are many people who are in jobs that they prefer not to be in for whatever reason but um you know let's just talk about people who are who are going to jobs where they're interested in being there where they're excited to be there um you know they don't really care whether or not, um, you know, there's a way for them to look at cat videos. You know, they're there to to <laughs> put their brains to work, right? So yeah, yeah. anytime we bring technology into the workplace, it's got to serve the employee. It's got to serve yeah. them by being work relevant. And it's got to first and foremost help them be who they are in the workplace and help them do their job in the workplace. Um, so... You know, we see that a lot through our, uh, you know, prospects that we talk to here at Jostle, just around uh, companies wanting to just layer on something that's the, sort of the social aspect or that, you know, that, that doesn't have a well thought out strategy around why you would even bring a piece of technology into the workplace. And it's because they're yeah. missing the point around their system design, which is, you know, your point at the very beginning of this, has to support the execution of work and support people in their ability to do that, but also to be happy and successful and engaged in doing that work. Um, And it's really the the sense of fulfillment that we get as humans by doing work that interests us, that leads us to want to come back for more and want to explore and expand and be curious. And so if, if organizations are thinking about engagement, um, in terms of just sort of adding fun and games, and that's you know how they're building their cultures. Well, it's, it's going to be fairly short-lived, you know, as I'm yeah, sure you've I, seen with many of your customers. Yeah, it's it's funny. Even my own experience. I mean, I remember at the turn of the century working in in uh, you know e-learning houses, and you know they have the ping pong tables, and they would have the pizza parties, and all those things were nice 
but in the back of people's minds, it was if I'm playing this game too long, I'm gonna it's gonna reflect badly on me, right? So, you know, it still comes down to ultimately is remembering the motivation behind people. I think Dan Pink said it best, you know, and that is autonomy and mastery and purpose. That's what people want. And you mm-hmm. know, generational stereotyping aside, I don't care how old you are, those are the things everybody wants in an organization. And I think if we focus more of our energy, our leadership, our management focuses much more around how do I help people do their job better? How do I remove barriers to getting work done? People are going to be much more satisfied and engaged. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And and also just the opportunity for them to be more creative and spend time on those high value activities that um, allow us to sort of transcend a lot of the, the noise within an organization as well and take a lot of the inefficiency out of our, our processes and the way that we talk to one another and the way that we have conflict. Um, and I think there's, there's just so many healthy reasons for us to be rethinking um, how, how we're setting up the way that people work. And right. you know, that's why I really like the the emphasis that you had on, you know, that, that positive friction, that, that, that idea has, has um, really got some interesting options for, for, for changing how people think about, um, you know, those, those sparks, those fleeting moments where, um, you know, you can make a decision to do something um, if you have courage to do it. But are yeah. we actually giving people that, that permission? and creating those environments where they can live up what the, the next step needs to be for that spark to take hold. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, I'm sure we could spend hours talking about, you know, what the, the optimal cultures are and you know, oh, geez, yeah. <laughs> what does that look like in practice? And but maybe, you know, let's, let's shift gears a little bit and, and talk a bit more about, um, you know, if we're looking at learning and development in particular, um, you know, what are you seeing right now in, you know, perhaps the, the research that you're doing? And, and I know that you, you play a, an observer role and have a great interest in understanding what's happening sort of at a, at a macro level. But what are you seeing as some of the big obstacles around learning and development in particular in organizations that you've had contact with? Yeah, the biggest, the biggest issue is still a training first melody. Um, I think training has a place in organizations. It always, but the problem is it's always the starting point. You know, human beings are, are you know, for, for 10,000 years, we've learned through our own interactions. We've learned through, you know, um, storytelling and, and, you know, kind of uh, gathering together and sharing. So the technology today, especially in the collaborative space, allows us to do that. But there's still a mindset in organizations that I need a learning and development department. And that learning and development department will have output every single other department in the organization, marketing and accounting and so on. And that really kind of hinders things in an organization because learning is not a department. You know, learning is an ongoing process in an organization. I'm a big proponent of the idea of 70-20-10. I'm not sure if you're familiar, Bev, but, you know, 70-20-10 is the idea that, you know, the majority of learning happens informally. You know, it happens Mm -hmm. in our experiences. It happens in the work that we do. Next to that is social interactions, what they call the 20. uh, And then only about 10% is our formal. Now, again, the percentages don't matter. It's more about most, much, and some. 
but right. you know, 90%, you know, this higher level number is where really learning takes place. We have the technology today to influence that. And I think learning development needs to shift its priorities from creating content to more or less focused on creating the channels uh, between content out there, you know, helping people to build their networks uh, in, a, in, a, in a true sense, they call it personal learning network, uh, inside and outside of organizations would be a, a stronger use of the learning function. But as it stands, we still have very much a training mindset. We were organizations are still, because the technology is there, um, it's, you know, you know, when you, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah, that's, that's interesting that you you talk about the, the personal um, learning network, I think is how you phrased it. And yeah. maybe I'll, I'll drill in a little bit to what that looks like within workplaces as it relates to the transfer of knowledge and the adoption of skills between managers and employees through mechanisms like one-on-ones and mm -hmm. informal coaching. You know, how, how, what have you seen that uh, demonstrates, you know, one versus the other in, in terms of those employees who get that type of exposure and attention and employees who don't? Like, does it, what, what actually, the, what, what impacts the learning in, in either of those scenarios? Well, I, th I think any chance you have to touch base with an expert, and a lot of times you like to think a manager would be more of the expert in, in, in helping employees in a particular area. It does come down to like that relationship. I think there has to be in any type of personal learning network, you know, using technology to amplify and grow that network or not, you know, there's a certain level of respect and trust that has to has to exist. You know, we we're only going to learn from people that that we respect and we we trust their knowledge and their ideas and what they put out there. I think for most people, it comes down to those one-on-ones um, aren't necessarily a, a of a personal nature in any way, but they're honest, you know, and I think that's where we find, again, it goes back to where managers kind of fall short is in their effort to stay you know, extremely politically correct and not have HR breathe down their neck or, you know, have some type of repercussion. We're not necessarily giving employees exactly what they need to hear um, from time to time in, in those, those type of in, instances. But I think the greater impact for any type of employee is, and I know it was for me, you know, in, in this space was building that network of other peers, you know, that I could bounce ideas off of, get influenced from, you know, years and years ago to give you an outside example of this, I was working on my second master's in, in instructional systems design. And uh, it's around 2008, 2009. And at the same time, I started discovering all these wonderful blogs and I had joined up on Twitter and I started connecting with these thinkers and writers and, and researchers. And I was learning far more about the instructional design process in the real world through that process. So I terminated my degree program. I was getting what I needed without that degree and applying it immediately at work. And this goes back to that concept of continuous learning, workflow learning, and it's really building those trusted networks. And the skill is really in monitoring those networks and refining those networks and giving to get and you know having input and not just taking information back from them. Mm -hmm. But this is to me the future. This is to me is the greater part in the future of learning. Yeah, and and what do you think? Um, 
the role of something like performance management, and I know that's a fairly contentious topic at the moment, at least from the, the scan that I've been doing of the the landscape. Um, but yeah. do they fulfill a, a function in terms of the, like, are they part of the personal learning network? And, you know, what role should they play uh, going forward for, um, because essentially, I mean, Part of performance management must be keeping track of what people are learning and how they're advancing and, and you know, improving their skills or strengthening certain areas of their capabilities. So um, yeah. Yeah. there's a learning aspect there that needs to be measured. But would you see that as sort of a, a part of or separate from a personal learning network? No, I think I definitely think it's part of. I mean, somebody who's that close to um, the workflow for an individual. I mean, one of the things I think we always have to remember when it comes to measuring learning is the only way to measure learning is a behavior change. You know, are we mm. enacting new skills and, and activities in the workflow? Any other measure is is a milestone at best. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, I completed this course. You know, I even XAPI will, you know, that that will track, for example, um, experiences somebody has. They were in this meeting and they met person or they access this resource online, but unless it's applied, it's not really learning. So I think what happens is we have new technologies and better technologies to better understand the paths people are taking to expertise and we can replicate those. You know, we understand mm -hmm. that, you know, I think performance management will take on much more of that and understanding how our best performers actually operate in an organization and how can we re repeat that for our workforce in other areas. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I guess the, the other area that I think about right now is because it also seems to be very um, prominent, um, you know, just on LinkedIn, for example, if you do a scan of, of posts and, and, and articles, um, is this notion of, of how important coaching is and, and being open to coaching and being coachable. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, it seems like every second person on LinkedIn has become a certified coach. And, <laughs> no, so there's, there's definitely, um, and full respect to, you know, I'm not, I'm not belittling the, the certification and, um, you know, the, the, the practice and, and requirement for coaching. But I guess my, my question is around how, how individuals actually harness sort of the benefits of coaching without necessarily needing to formally engage a coach. And do managers fulfill the role of coach to some degree as well? And should that be, if we're talking about this new, the new utopian world of these yeah. amazingly energetic organizations, are managers' titles replaced by, say, the word coach? Like, is that, a, mm -hmm. is that something that we should be thinking about? Yeah, I think words. I think words matter, but yeah, I definitely would agree. I think the primary focus of any type of anybody who oversees employees should be how do I again? How do I help these people grow? You know, and, and and having an understanding of the learning process, having an understanding of the impact of context and the environment of an organization on employees, you know, understanding and having open conversations about the barriers that people face each and every day in their work, and not just saying suck it up. You know, this is your job. This is how it gets done. Figure it out. That's why I hired you. Is definitely the wrong mindset to have. And I think. You know, if you have to change the name of a manager to something like employee coach or this, this this coach of this team, it does have a different connotation, has a different feel to it. And I don't think it can be dismissed that there might be advantages mm -hmm. to doing just what you suggested. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, talking about setting people up for success, I, I saw a stat today around um, you know only twelve percent of new employees feel that their onboarding that they received was was suitable to set them up for success, and that's a Gallup mm-hmm. um, number. And you know, right there is a tremendous opportunity for us to be thinking about how we're actually bringing people into organizations and helping them to get started on the right foot from day one. And what that means down the road for the employee after they've moved through their, you know, their three months of probation and they're into their role and they're functioning hopefully optimally, but it really does start with, um, the you know the very first day that they arrive in the office. I mean, and obviously it starts even through the interview process. But um, yeah. you know, so what's your opinion on you know maybe let's talk a little bit about that the, the onboarding side of things because that is where a lot of learning has to happen in in terms of the, the person getting to know the company, how it works, who the people are, what sort of what's the architecture, how do people interface with one another? Um, maybe give me your thoughts on on you know what can we be doing better as it relates to onboarding of people yeah i think i think social i mean i think learning is mostly a social experience and i think i would make the case that in any situation onboarding a new employee from an orientation into the onboarding type of process should be a social endeavor and and that really means bringing people together as quickly as you can to see the content you know in, in in the context that people use it. So that what I mean by content is the work that people are doing, you know, the outputs and the inputs and the, the nature of the jobs. And I think what we often do wrong in onboarding is we dump everything on the employee early. And that's the orientation phase. And there's an expectation that from that point forward, it'll be just kind of ad hoc introductions to various people in the organization. When we really need to think about it more strategically, and what are those things that people are going to need to do immediately? What are those things that people are going to need to be able to know and do in 30 days, 60 days, 90 days? And who are, and most importantly, who are the people that are going to help them be most successful in those particular roles and interactions? It's usually not just the manager and the employee. It's other employees, Mm -hmm. it's other colleagues, it's other departments and divisions that we interface with. So, you know, the sooner that you're opening those channels of communication, to those people, um, the quicker that knowledge and, and understanding of the roles happen. It really, I, we have to get out of the formal structured uh, sense of it and start with kind of a social um, beginning. And I think, you know, social technology, I think is a, is a huge game changer if people want to adopt it, you know, early on. I think one of the things that, you know, uh, one of the things I know I did in the past was just that. And so, so we had a new um, cohort brought in. Um, they were immediately introduced to the cohort's blog. And it was just, a, we're talking a long time ago in blogs, it was about the only thing we had going for us. And it was like, it, it was just, a, it was not even a thought. It was like, this is what we do here, you know, and, and therefore it wasn't a scary proposition. And it was just something people embraced right from the onset. Yeah, and I think therein lies the key, right? It's just about designing your, your organization and your processes in such a way that uh, yes, they are just, they're there from the onset for people to help them slot in, get up to speed quickly with as little mm-hmm. friction as possible and do what they were hired to do um, in a way that's, that's positive for both parties, right? So that, um, 
you know, you can have that person up and running and productive and contributing to your organization as soon as possible, but at the same time, it gives them sort of the emotional support and the, the confidence and the, you know, knowing that they are being supported through this very new phase of joining a company. Because, I mean, mm -hmm. for so many reasons, it's, it's a disruptive, emotional, scary, exciting time, mostly, when you're joining a new company. Right. But, it's, you know, those first three months are just so critical in helping us really set people up for success and help the rest of the team as well at the same time. So, um, but we have unfortunately almost run out of our time. So we have. I'm going to have to, you know, say that we've got to have part two at some time, or we're just going to have to be satisfied with what we covered here today. <laughs> but yeah, it's hard to believe. Um, but I want to be respectful of your day. And I know that you've got lots of other things going on. Um, and like I said, I mean, we could talk about these things. Um, you know, for hours yeah. because they're just so fascinating and there's so much happening right now. I think we're in such a privileged position to be able to be part of the working world at the moment and experiencing this new age that we're, we're I mean, we're not entering it, we're in it. <laughs> we are deep in it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're in it. Um, but, you know, thank you for your, your leadership and, and uh, you know, your stewarding of us through some of these you know harder topics and I know that you're very vocal and and rightly so and just so grateful that you're you're contributing to the conversation and that you've um, had some time to talk with me today about some things you're you're passionate about and yeah. uh, maybe well, thanks I'll for having close, me. and I'll just maybe close by asking you you know if you had advice for um, you know a manager who is in his or her organization today that might be listening to the podcast, uh, you know, what one thing should they be thinking about changing that could really help improve their team and uh, the way that their organization operates? Yeah, I think it goes back to the beginning of our conversation. And I think it goes around two kind of buzzwords, I know, but being more open and transparent. You know, we talk about psychological safety on the front end. And I think it's a manager, you know, more than anybody in the organization who leads by example for those people of the team or their department or division that they head up. So I think ultimately it comes down to if if they are showing humility, if they're showing sincerity in, in what they do and they believe firmly that failure is part of the learning process, um, they really open up their team, you know, to be much more receptive to that idea. And that to me is a change agent. Yeah, those are um, very insightful words and, and definitely something that each of us has access to as, you know, those are some humility and transparency and being open and, and you know, even just it comes down to demonstrating kindness and compassion. Um, Correct. Those are all innate um, human qualities that we can tap into. So, um, so thank you for raising those. And, uh, you know, I've, I love hearing those uh, those words used because it just really reinforces to me how um, you know we do have to keep this humanness front and center, yeah. and that if we can frame things around um, how we show up as leaders and doing so in a very authentic way, um, we can help those around us and we can move through even difficult situations and difficult conversations and difficult challenges within organizations um, right. much more effectively. Um, if we work through it together. So thank you again. And thanks for having I, uh, me.
I hope that this is the first of a few conversations and um, yeah, let's, you know, we still haven't met each other in person, but you know, maybe one day that, that uh, serendipity will have us in the same place at the same time to have a, a cup of coffee or a beer and talk about these topics in person. I would love to. That sounds great. Again, thanks for having me. It's fun talking to you. I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed it as well. Thanks, Mark. And uh, we'll be in touch soon. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the People at Work podcast. I hope that you enjoyed and took away from the episode as much as I did. If you'd like to reach Mark, he can be found on LinkedIn, or you can find his contact information on the landing page for this episode of the podcast. If you'd like to reach out to me, I can be found at bev at jostle.me, and I'd love to hear your feedback or ideas for future guests or topics that we should cover on the podcast. If you particularly enjoyed what we're doing with the podcast today, I do encourage you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you feel motivated to do so, we'd love to hear a review of what you really like about what we're covering and the types of people that we're speaking to on the podcast. So thank you very much for being part of the episode and we'll see you next time.